0: One does not necessarily allow the state to define what is legal. Now, The state has the power to enforce a certain concept of what is legal,
1: but power doesn't imply justice or correctness even. Throughout American history, the political leaders have always exhorted the American people to be nice and quiet and leave things to them. But when very serious evils confronted the American people, they had to go beyond the congressmen and the senators, and they had to commit civil disobedience, and they had even to break the law.
2: You're listening to News Coup, a public herald production where we overthrow the status quo. I'm your host, Joshua Probanek, and today we're going to dive deeper into fracking's radioactivity problem. Now that the election is over and Joe Biden is the incoming president, fracking is back on the nation's radar. As Biden's new administration is being put together at this moment, the big question is how they're going to handle fracking and handle climate change with a climate plan thus far that seems to mirror that of the oil and gas industry. And by saying that, what it means is that it's not going to be phasing out fossil fuels anytime soon. Biden's plan right now does mobilize that natural gas infrastructure as a renewable energy source, as a quote-unquote safe energy source, and it's going to be our job as journalists to peel that apart and show you what's lying underneath this plan. And one of the big stories that lies underneath a lot of these plans is where is all of the waste from this industry going? Our latest reports at Public Herald has mapped out in Joe Biden's home state in Pennsylvania, where these 30 landfills are that are taking this waste in this state. And one of those, the biggest one of those actually, just happens to be in Joe Biden's hometown backyard. Now we've been able to identify where this waste is, where it's going and who's holding it and how the T-norm, the technically enhanced naturally occurring radioactive material that's contained in that waste, how it's getting into public waters in this state via sewage plants from leachate from landfills or via discharge from treatment plants. And at this point, one story that hasn't been told well across the country is what's happening with the oil and gas workers as they're picking up this waste from a well pad, from a sewage plant, from a treatment plant, and then trucking it to a landfill or some other source. And in this particular story, Public Herald is produced with Justin Noble and Kristen Losey, two distinct whistleblowers were talking about all of these dark secrets that happen between the truck coming to a well pad or going to these places and then picking that up and taking it to a landfill itself. And it's important because the state has been relying on these self-reporting mechanisms, these regulatory mechanisms. Either it's self-reporting about how much T-Norm is going to the landfill or self-reporting about you know how much radioactivity is actually in the waste. And when you hear the picture of this story, it begins to cast doubt on not only how this waste is being handled, but how it's being reported to the state. And this waste story is something that the Biden administration has not really included into these climate plans. The idea that X amount of radioactive waste has already been unearthed X amount of radioactive waste will also be extracted out by furthering the oil and gas industry, especially in Pennsylvania. And what are going to be the consequences of that particular waste because it will not break down for 1,600 years. It's a dramatic and serious threat to not just the environment but to human health in general. And we don't have a handle on it. And that's what this story is doing. It's trying to get a handle on this shadow part of the industry that exists. So before we dive in, we want to thank our Patreon supporters. The patrons that we have at Public Herald have helped finance this work. And if you want to support us, you can go to patreoncom publicherald and become a patron for as little as a dollar a month. You'll have access to all of our documentary films, including our latest film, Invisible Hand, which just so happens to be about a community who has banned this waste from being injected into their town. So that would be a really interesting documentary to check out if this story appeals to you or to the problems that you're having in your area. So without further ado, let's hear from these brave workers who've spoken out.
3: The year is 2014. And the sleepy mining and agricultural towns of northern Appalachia have transformed into gold rush towns. But this isn't gold. It's shale gas. These towns sit above an underground formation called the Marcellus Shale that could help make America the world's greatest producer of natural gas. And in 2014, the Marcellus region is booming. The restaurants are buzzing, bars packed. Hotels full for the first time since many people can remember. Each generation of this area has seen the boom and the bust of other major industries. Timber, coal, steel, and shale gas is the next one. It's marketed as energy independence, good paying blue collar jobs, the American dream. In areas where decades of economic decline have created a culture of need This dream is welcomed with open arms. Tom lives in Eastern Ohio and sells used cars. He works long hours and starts to notice out of towners from states like Texas and Louisiana coming wearing cowboy boots and looking to buy fancy new trucks. Everyone seems to have money to spare except Tom. When he asks the men what they do, they describe an interesting trucking job he's never heard of before. It involves 10 to 12 hour days sitting behind the wheel of a brine truck, hauling water from the fracked gas wells popping up across Pennsylvania and West Virginia to sites in Ohio called injection wells. With overtime, you can make $60,000 a year or more. And unlike most trucker jobs where long hauls are the norm, you're home with your family every night. Tom could make twice the pay he makes now, enough to pay off decades old credit card debt and send his kids to college. Brandon lives about an hour east of Tom, near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He grew up in an industrial town as Pittsburgh's steel industry died and crumbled. Running through his town was Chartier's Creek, which has long been one of the most industrially polluted streams in the region. As a kid, it was common knowledge to stay out of that water. Yet he saw the environment start to bounce back as the industry left the area and regulation increased. Starting his career as a young environmental professional in the 2010s, right after the Great Recession, he saw the oil and gas industry as a welcome new opportunity for the area. He thought, we've learned from the mistakes of our past, and this is an industry that can finally be properly regulated to protect the health and the environment of the area. In 2013, he took a job with a local environmental cleanup company, SunPro, They focused on hazardous material cleanup for the oil and gas operations. The pay was good, the hours long, and they often worked for some of the big players in the Marcellus of southwestern Pennsylvania, like Range Resources. Brandon thought, regardless of how many regulations you have in place, accidents happen. And he had the skills and the tools to make sure any hazardous materials were properly cleaned up. He and his colleagues took their jobs very seriously and worked hard to make sure it was all done according to the books. Now the year is 2020. Brandon is standing next to Chartier's Creek, about 20 miles upstream from where he grew up. He left the industry a number of years ago and now owns his own business that provides holistic support for people dealing with serious illnesses like cancer. Nearby, foamy water spurts out into the creek from a massive concrete pipe leading to the local municipal sewage treatment plant. There's evidence people come here to play. Fishing lures, well-worn paths, a lonely muddy sock. Across the stream is the local municipal landfill, Arden Landfill, where he used to drop off waste from the drilling process when he worked at SunPro. In the past decade, this landfill has received over a million tons of solid oil and gas waste and is now one of the highest geological features in an area known for its rolling hills. When asked if he would have taken the waste to the municipal landfill, if he'd known what was really in it, Brandon said,
4: No, of course not.
5: Oil and gas workers are the industry's black box, a living testament and a living test kit to an outrageous set of hazards thrust upon them by bottom line hungry employers. For those of us reporting on and living with fracking, this part of the puzzle has always been a mystery. What happens to these workers at the wellhead and, equally as important, what happens to these workers between the wellhead and the landfill, the wellhead and the injection well? The risks these workers face have never been appropriately examined, and up until now, their full story has never been told. Among all the exposure risks, including hundreds of toxic chemicals and known human carcinogens like benzene, there is something that has remained almost completely below the surface. Radioactivity. Although the media rarely discusses it, And the Occupational Health and Safety Administration, OSHA, the branch of the U.S. government charged with protecting U.S. workers, remains MUM. The industry has known for decades that oil and gas production brings an incredible amount of radioactive waste to the surface. It comes up as a toxic salty liquid the industry refers to as brine or produced water in the form of drill cuttings from fracking bores cut through radioactive black shales, and as various mineral scales and sludges that form on piping and in tank bottoms that can be, in the words of one radiation control consultant, much hotter than most stuff in nuclear plants. One major risk involves the industry's truckers, who haul various wastes from wellhead to disposal site often thinking they are just hauling water or dirt. A loophole called the Benson and Bevel Amendments, part of an act from the late 1970s called the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act that intended to manage the nation's hazardous waste streams, led to a stunning exemption from hazardous waste law for the oil and gas industry. Even though the major companies and the US EPA are aware oil and gas waste contains toxic heavy metals, carcinogens, and radioactivity, the nation's Environmental Protection Agency determined in 1988 that regulating the waste as hazardous would cause a severe economic impact on the industry and on oil and gas production in the U.S. Thus began decades of transporting the waste in unmarked trucks driven by men like Tom and Brandon, who were not made aware of the true contents of what they were hauling. It is the relentless push for deregulation in pursuit of the idea that peeling back burdensome rules makes industry and jobs flourish that has put the well-being of workers at risk. In two exclusive interviews, Public Herald speaks to a truck driver and hazardous material technician who worked in the booming Marcellus fracking industry. They say that while there was money to be made, the devastating risks to their health and their families are a cost that nobody has calculated or appreciated. Until now. Brandon and Tom take us behind the scenes into the dirty, gritty, and radioactive side of fracking. A world so absurd it seems unbelievable In fact, it may be hard to comprehend that workers like these were put into these shocking situations while working for the richest industry in one of the richest nations on earth. And yet this happened. And even as you hear Tom and Brandon speak, this is still happening to other oil and gas workers like them in the U.S. and around the world. We have heard from environmental advocates, politicians regulators and the oil and gas industry executives but these are the voices we have not heard
4: back in 2012 and 13 the oil field was coming on strong and a lot of us noticed out-of-town people coming into this geographical area i actually saw the increased incomes, the the bigger paycheck stubs and everything coming from it. You see the hotels fill up, you could see the restaurants filling up, all kinds of Southwestern talk, you know, the hillbillies coming in with their cowboy boots and their cowboy hats. And, And the environment, it just went boom, all of a sudden it changed. So I thought, well, gee whiz, you know, these people are earning this kind of money. I'm gonna look into this so i went to one of these trucking companies that moved in from pennsylvania i was just out for a ride with my wife on a sunday afternoon and uh, i drove through the back of the parking lot of the company that was closest and there was a guy working in the back and he asked what i was doing there and i told him i said i heard it's a good place to work and and, uh, he shed his coveralls and took me into the general manager's office he turned out to be the general manager himself and you know, we sat down and did the interview right then, just no no phone calls, no introductions, no no points of reference, no nothing. He was just happy to get somebody that was wanting to look at the positions their their big thing is they just had to get a lot of people working as fast as they could to handle the amount of business and there I was, a Brian Hall. I do not remember anything more than. The risk of driving with the high center of gravity and pinching off fingers and stuff, you know, when you're hooking up hoses and and doing things like that. They put us in an orientation class, and I thought at the time that it was extremely comprehensive. They spent hours on H2S. They spent hours on explosive gases. They had different programs all the way through with the major oil companies in the area that, that had their own videos set up and how to do it on their particular site when you arrived on their site. And it was very extensive. The only thing, though, they never talked about radiation. And I remember specifically somebody in our orientation class bringing up radiation. And the guy, Frank McKnight's his name, that was putting on the orientation class for CS Trucking held up his cell phone and said, you'll never get more radiation than you're getting off of one of these right here. So we all just, oh, okay, well, that's great. You know, nothing to worry about there. Basically, they said anything that's not fresh water is brine. So no matter what you're hauling, if it's not fresh water, it's brine.
5: While the oil and gas industry innocently refers to the material Tom regularly hauled as brine or saltwater or often just water, records from the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection, DEP, show that levels of the radioactive element radium can be 5,700 times the EPA safe drinking water limit, and 443 times what the Nuclear Regulatory Commission would allow in the discharge pipe of a nuclear power plant or uranium enrichment facility. That is, 60 picocuries per liter for both radium-226 and radium-228. In an email, EPA conveyed this is the same level that for liquid waste the agency has defined as radioactive. Meanwhile, according to a lengthy commentary released this spring by the National Council on Radiation Protection and Measurements, the sludge that settles out at the bottom of ponds of produced water or brine can contain radium at levels more than 1,000 times background more than 200 times what would be permissible at a Superfund site, the nation's infamous, highly toxic waste sites. But Tom knew nothing about any of this. From 2013 to the end of 2017, he worked the heart of the Marcellus oil and gas field, a sweet spot of production that runs from northwestern West Virginia up through southwestern Pennsylvania. Waste spewed up by fracked wells in the first weeks of production is filled with toxic chemicals from the fracturing as well as heavy metals and radioactivity. The slurry is referred to as flowback and stored on site in large frac tanks or wastewater ponds called containments. The brine or produced water that comes later and will flow for the rest of the wells producing life is stored in more permanent brine tanks on-site. For decades, oilfield brine was spewed directly into creeks and bayous. Presently, the most popular method for disposing of brine is to shoot it at high pressure back into the earth at an injection well. But many of the injection wells that Tom regularly hauled his oil and gas waste to were in eastern Ohio, so he was constantly crisscrossing the region in his brine truck. It seemed, at least initially, that there was never a dull moment.
4: I was extremely excited. I had a lot of fun with it. There was just so many water trucks out there and so much inexperience and so much of a damn-the-torpedoes-full-speed-ahead attitude. We were hauling in fresh water. We were hauling out dirty water. The whole time we were there, there was dump trucks uh, hauling out tailings. What did they call that again? It wasn't tailings, drill cuttings. The dirtiest stuff that I hold on a regular basis was after the well was drilled, after the fracking was done, they called it bringing it online. And they would go down and cut these plugs out. And that first initial burst of water was just some really Dirty stuff. Sometimes it was as black as the screen of your phone when you shut it off. I mean, just black. I spent a lot of time underneath that rig, literally getting rained on when they were pulling the pipe by that water. You would be out there literally just vacuuming up this water that was laying down on their containment around the rigs. The other thing was while they were doing that, they would have sometimes six or eight frac tanks and. All water would come out of there. They would put in these frac tanks, and what they would do is let them settle in one frac tank, and then the settled out water they'd move to the next one, the next one, so on. So we would haul that water away too, and and while they were bringing them online and letting them settle out, that'd be a flurry of trucks, constant trucks, 24 hours a day. So that that was all really dirty when they go from that series of frack tanks and bringing them online to putting them in the regular storage tanks that they have permanently on site, we would go in and clean out those frack tanks so that they could move them. So first thing we would do is suck all the water out. The second thing we would do, and it may not be our company, a different contractor might come in come in with what they called a super sucker and then they would literally get somebody in there with shovels and that super sucker and these things suck so hard they could actually rip your arm off you know but they'd get in there and they'd pull all these solids up and they would take them to a uh, new watering facility to make it dry so that they could put it in a landfill we'd be hauling Brian for oh let's say a month so as you haul brine, that sand builds up in the bottom. Every time you haul it, it just gets a little thicker. So if they got an order for fresh water, we'd take our truck back to the shop. They'd pop the manhole off, send the guys in with a shovel, shovel it all out, and send them in with a pressure wash it out, rinse it. So them guys would be all exposed to all that too, you know, right in there breathing it and all being around. You would take a shovel in and, you know, scrape it all down, shovel it out, take a flat shovel, you know, and you start on the sides because they're rounded and just sort of scoop to the middle. There's a guy outside and you, he'd be holding a bucket up or a big pan or something. You'd shovel it into there and then he would take it over and we'd have a hopper there that would, it would go to disposal too. You know, every once in a while we'd have to have, you know, the landfill bring our rollback truck and, and haul it away. They supplied us with the yellow neoprene uh, rain suits, a face mask and a respirator. Uh, one of the rubber ones with the cartridges on the sides management had the uh, attitude it's like hey we can lead a horse to water but we can't force them to drink if they won't wear the ppe we're not going to force them to do it you know that one time i related to you that i was sent to clean out frack tanks after they were done bringing online a well and i opened the manhole in the front which is about 18 inches around and has a series of butterfly nuts And you take a hammer and you knock those butterfly nuts off and then i open them up i stuck my head in i stuck the two inch hose in and i guided it down to the very bottom sump of the tank so i could clean them out get as much water as possible out of the end of that day my head underneath the hard hat and above my neckline looked like i'd been down in florida out in the sun all day in the little spot the inch spot between my gloves and where my shirt started was also all red like the sunburn. I don't know whether that was a uh, reaction to the salt, but now I'm wondering if it's not a uh, radiation burn. I've seen guys go in there just with their T-shirts and blue jeans on and a face mask, you know. Depends. You know, some guys are tough. They, they don't care. But for the most part, coveralls, and they were instructed to just use dawn dish detergent to clean out when they're done so there was no precautions made they were made to do their own laundry at home or whatever or in the hotels you know they'd also have to bathe in dawn dish soap just like we see the commercials when exxon valdez went down and the volunteers cleaning off the little ducks with dawn the same deal
5: did someone instruct them like this is the appropriate way to wash yourself after you've been in a frack tank bathed with Don dish soap or
4: yes yeah i believe that's true yeah
5: where would the clothes be washed
4: well i would imagine that like if i brought those clothes home my wife would just shit so i imagine they get in a bucket and uh get rinsed out with Don dish soap as much as possible before they get put in a regular watcher
5: Would they ever be wearing like a respirator or a Tyvek suit or or a decimeter that would be measuring for radiation?
4: I would say yes to the Tyvek suit. I don't think I've ever seen a uh, radiation monitor on anybody around anything that I did.
3: Around the same time, in the same vibrant part of the Marcellus, Brandon was working as a hazmat tech for some of the biggest companies in the oil patch, cleaning up some of their most dangerous waste.
6: People cared what they were doing. We had a strong safety culture there, which is huge. A lot of places it's lip service to safety, but it's not really carried through in the day-to-day practice. I would say we had all of that there pretty strong. At least at the time and then most of the spill response that i was involved with was either for like two bigger clients at the time one was mark west which was a pipeline company and we did a lot of work for them out in ohio and then the other was range resources we did emergency response for both of those clients but then we also did normal like waste removal services for both of those clients as well You were asking about spills, though, so I'll start there. One that I remember well because I was sort of managing it, they had had a brine spill off the corner of a well pad. And I'm not sure exactly, like, thinking back, I don't remember what had caused it, but I feel like they sort of overtopped a holding tank with brine that they'd either brought in from somewhere else or – it may have been flow back from the well and it spilled off the corner of the pad. And the nice thing about brine is it's salt water, right? So we just used the soil probe and had excavators out there to clean up the affected soil. And by clean up, I mean, removed from site and then that just goes to landfill and it's like tons and tons and tons of earth, you know, when that happens it's super expensive for them. But we had scaling PPE anywhere from we're just wearing like boots and jeans and like FR clothing flame resistant cause that's required on site in that industry. Anywhere from that all the way up to a full splash suit and respirator with gloves and rubber boots taped over everything else. So, like, for a brine spill, really, boots and jeans were considered adequate. But the thing is, it's really hard to control your risk completely when you don't know exactly what you're dealing with.
3: So, what did they talk to you guys about in terms of radiation? Did you guys have any sort of testing for that when you were in the tanks?
6: No, that's a really good point. I mean, well, I guess yes and no. It's something that I feel like we sort of started to do better after we had been working at this for a little while and kind of seeing what the the waste was doing. So yeah, after a while, we did start taking gamma scanners with us. So we would take this waste out of the frac tanks because they can't legally go down the road with the waste loaded. So we would take them and put them in those roll-off boxes. They're like 10 cubic yards. Some of them are called vacuum boxes, vac box, because you can actually vacuum the waste straight into them with a vac truck. But here's the thing. So if we had the waste sitting in those, in a vac box, say you can open the top hatch on that vac box and you can put your geiger counter or gamma scanner whatever you want to call it the brand we used was called ludlum and you could open the hatch and either hold the ludlum right there at the port or you could maybe put your arm in up to your elbow and just kind of read so what it would do though you might originally have a gamma reading gamma radiation reading slightly above background we'll just say background's 10 so we might get a reading like 17 or 22 so it's like i mean that. Big deal. That's double background is almost nothing, still in my mind at least. But then, if it sits and you check again in like a few days, it might have gone up. You know, maybe it's in the 50s. And then at some point in the future, it'll peak, you know, at whatever level it's going to peak out at. It's just strange to me that, like, over time, if the waste sits, you know, because you're waiting for approval for disposal somewhere, you'll see higher and higher gamma radiation measurements off the stuff. But this was just sort of like coming into our collective consciousness. So there wasn't that upfront training. It was like we were learning as we went with that. And it was sort of like an awareness creeping in as I was working there. And I feel like, it was no fault of anyone at SunPro. I feel like maybe we were under-informed by our clients because of course they have, you know, they'd been doing this for decades by that point and they had to have a better handle on what was coming back out of the ground and the flowback.
3: back. They, so, they would have known, yeah.
6: Yeah, so that feels like, you know, a deliberate failure to disclose.
5: Andrew Gross knows all about the failure to disclose. He grew up in the rough-and-tumble 1970s Louisiana oil fields, and in the early 1990s operated a company called Radiation Technical Services that had contracts with some of the biggest oil and gas companies on Earth. Radiation Technical Services cleaned up the radioactive mess companies often left behind in the oil field. Gross knew the oil and gas industry's workers intimately because he worked with them every day. And he knew the risks they faced, too. He has been out in the oil patch, listened to its noises, breathed in its smells, and he collected its waste in little lab sampling jars. He hasn't been in some swivel chair far away from the action of the industry. He has been out digging in the industry's dirt. Gross has been in the legal trenches too, serving as an expert witness in cases involving oil and gas worker radioactivity exposure that somehow have remained invisible to the world. As unreal as it sounds, a set of Louisiana legal cases, some settled as recently as 2016, show workers doing a variety of common industry jobs, roughneck, roustabout, pipe cleaner, truck driver hauling sludge, developed cancers, and those cancers were linked using a radiation dose analysis program created by the CDC to the radioactivity exposure workers received on the job in the oil and gas industry. Sure, Gross doesn't have a Ph.D., as he readily admits, but he knows where the bodies
7: are buried. I was trained in the Navy. I was a health physicist in the Navy, Spent nine years there. When I got out, I went to work for energy for a brief period of time. But then I started my own company. And the object of my company was the norm regulations were pretty new at the time. So the objective we had was to help the industry comply. Norm, you know, norm is a nice word. The industry invented it doesn't sound like what it is, which is enhanced radioactive material. The oil industry has known about this since at least the 1950s and likely the 1930s from the documentation we've discovered over many years, and just chose to ignore it like they do with so many other things. So if you think about the half-life of radium-226, which is the main isotope concern, or plan when we talk about it anyway.
5: 1,600 years.
7: You know, this does not go away very fast. That's the problem, and it builds up over time. In the nuclear industry, and in the Navy also, for instance, you are very concerned about contamination so contamination is controlled very tightly because the problem is that you can get it on your clothes take it around all over it can spread very easily you take that home and your clothes your kids get into it and that's the sort of thing that gets in your lungs and you have these alpha emitting radioisotopes which are just pummeling a small area of your lung for years and years and years with these powerful alpha emissions and it's incredibly unsafe
5: Andrew discusses a specific oil industry task called pipe cleaning. It involves chiseling out a difficult to remove mineral deposit from the vertical piping that brings product to the surface. This deposit is called scale and contains extraordinarily high levels of radium. Levels that have literally been reported at tens of thousands to even hundreds of thousands of times
7: above background. They have this thing that goes down the middle of the pipe and kind of shaves off all of that stuff and shoots it out the other end. And there's a guy at the other end who's also rattling. So this stuff is flying out, and we have found concentrations like 50,000 picocuries per gram of uh, radium 226 in this stuff, and it is horrible. In one pipeyard, which was particularly egregious, we went to workers' houses and found in their like the uh, laundry. Uh, what do you call it? the 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 lint vent in the lint, the lint of the laundry was incredibly hot, the carpets were very contaminated, bedding, all clothing, and there were like two little toddlers walking around the floor. It was just insane. Just as much concern is for the guys who are going and cleaning out tanks. The guys who clean the tanks are also in, you know, significant jeopardy. And they should all be wearing personal protective gear, just like you're seeing nurses wear, except better quality. You know half face respirators, not N95s. If I were them, I would want, once a month at least, to have the cab of the truck surveyed with some uh, wipe samples to make sure there's not a buildup inside the cab. If your interest is in protecting workers and protecting the public from exposures, simple things can be done. Simple personal protective equipment and decent respirators, which are only 15, 20 bucks a piece, can lower that risk 80, 90% right off the bat. And when it comes to the public, checking those tanks to make sure they don't have radioactive material in them, that is the simplest thing they can do and it'll save so many lives and so much time and money for them down the road. And I, I, for the life of me, I don't understand why they're so resistant to it. How has this been
5: allowed to happen? If everything is as bad as people like Andrew Gross say it is, Then why hasn't anyone pulled the lever long ago on this 10,000 alarm bell fire? Officially, the first producing oil and gas well in the United States was in Titusville, Pennsylvania. Invariably, it spewed up radioactive brine. And the pipes that carried the product to the surface would have eventually built up a mineral scale that likely became radioactive. How is it possible that this issue has gone unseen, at least in the eyes of the public and the industry's own workers, for 161 years? Andrew had some ideas.
7: You have a community that is economically distressed, and, you know, they get a job, and it's a good job, so the jobs pay decent money. It's not like they're working at Walmart or something. They get a few bucks more an hour. So their first part is going to be feeding their families. These jobs are not meant for somebody with a master's degree. They're meant for somebody who maybe went to high school or whatever and needs to make money and feed his kids. The big fear when we do in any area, and one thing the oil industry always would say in Louisiana is that we're killing them with lawsuits, that we're driving away, we're killing jobs, which is nonsense. As long as they can make a profit, they don't care. What we're doing is trying to hold them accountable, but they don't like that. A corporation exists for one reason, is to make profits for its shareholders. That's the only reason it exists. Shell can run as many commercials as they want about how they're stewards of the environment and taking care of the Gulf of Mexico. They are exist for one purpose. If you're the CEO of, you know, Exxon, your concern is your shareholders and your profits this quarter. So you are not spending money on any environmental nonsense that you can avoid spending it on. If people understand that on a base level, you know, especially the legislatures, then you can kind of have a system where corporations also be held accountable, but the system is just very rigged in so many places. Industry is very powerful.
5: Okay, but I guess would, the big takeaway for me was that exposures over, especially over the course of time in the industry, appear to be high enough to cause cancers in workers. Can we say that, or, or that's been shown?
7: Definitely. Going back many years, they've had health physicists on their staffs who told them about the risks from the radiation. They bring in top flight scientists in their side all, and we beat them all the time because the reality is they are involved in making a lot of excuses and having to explain away things. And our simple point is you're exposing people to radiation they shouldn't be exposed to and you're not even telling them it. Now, the official stance on the federal government and internationally is any dose carries some risk, no matter how slight radiation, any dose can have an effect. So for them to say it's perfectly it's perfectly safe is just utterly irresponsible. 2 hours of training with people and just a couple dollars worth of personal protective equipment can lower their risk 80% easy. That's what's so crazy. You know, it's so short-sighted for these companies to not just do that. That's one of the problems. There's not any you know sort of a one set of regulations. So it varies from state to state to state. But Pennsylvania is definitely the Wild West when it comes to radiological health regulations. I've never seen anything like it. And for me, especially being a guy from Louisiana, that really strikes me as odd that we're so much better off down here than all the people who are so smart up there.
3: Andrew was the salty guy who learned in the field, Marco is the careful scientist who is not afraid to go into the field. He has testified as an expert witness on radioactivity in numerous legal cases, and before the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. He has tracked radioactivity on five continents, a bit like Sherlock Holmes with a Geiger counter. He knows his radionuclides inside and out. In the 1990s, Marco said he would regularly be locked out of buildings he needed to inspect in post-Soviet Eastern Europe while working for Greenpeace, ensuring remote laboratories weren't secretly constructing nuclear weapons. This was not a problem for Marco. He simply had to test the doormats to know exactly what was going on inside the facilities. In St. Louis, Missouri, in the 2000s, Marco helped solve a radiological mystery by tracing the radioactive daughter products left over from 1950s uranium refining operations into local streams and people's backyards. In more recent decades, Marco has turned his eye to oil and gas radioactivity and fracking. What he's found is a shocking revelation for anyone who thinks that oil and gas workers' radioactivity exposures are insignificant. He's also pretty good at explaining it all.
8: Now, first I understand soil has a little bit of natural radioactivity i mean our planet is made of star stuff and guess what stars are radioactive there's a little bit of it left over in our world that's why the core of our planet is molten it's the radioactivity that's keeping it heated there's something we didn't know lava is basically made from a radiation cooker well a little bit of that gets up here we're used to it some of us die every year from it which is bad but we've given a number and we said, this number is normal and this number is not. know it's a lot of words, but essentially, you know, the words come down to, yes, the radiation is living in underground formations. We bring it to the surface. We don't want it, it's a waste. We don't really know what to do with it. So all these different regulations are just trying to put lots of fingers in lots of dikes and plug a lot of leaks. And try and keep this radiation under control once it's at the surface. The EPA needs to know who made the radioactivity and what were they thinking when they did it and what kind of product were they going to sell. Now, for me as a scientist, all of that is 100% irrelevant to radioactivity. Radioactivity is radioactivity, it's physics, and the nuclear physics in Massachusetts is exactly the same as the nuclear physics in Alabama and Washington and California. But as a regulator, we treat radiation from different places differently. So if an oil and gas company made a certain amount of radiation, they don't have to report it, they don't have to dispose of it any particular way, they really don't have to do it a whole lot, they are exempt. Whereas if the same amount of radioactivity were made by a white haired ponytail researcher in Massachusetts, I'd be filling out forms and paying for disposal till the cows came home. The radiation might be the same, but because it came from the oil and gas industry, we treat it differently. And to a scientist, this is always a mistake. There's no scientific reason for saying radioactivity from X is fine, but radioactivity, eh, I don't like yours, it's bad. That's something we have to get over. And it's going to be difficult. It's foolish to expend resources to treat radioactivity carefully in one case and carelessly in another.
5: Marco also has some good thoughts on the inevitable why and how questions. Why has this been allowed to happen? How has this been allowed to happen?
8: There are a lot of jobs where the regulatory agencies have not caught up. Changing regs takes a long time. At a minimum, consider it takes a change of administration for most new environmental laws to come through. That's certainly true now. And the time frame for regulation is measured in a decade or more. So we haven't even got people looking at the problem yet at the upper levels of managing agencies. So certainly your average inspector is going to be unfamiliar with with many of these different things. If you're working with radioactive material, it's normal for people to bring their work home with them. If you work in the oil fields, your clothes have oil on them, your washing machine has oil on them, your spouse probably makes you wash all of your stuff separately. Some people even have a separate washing machine. But I'm collecting data, whereas people who live in the house are collecting dose. They're getting exposed to that material that the worker brings home. So really, it's a family affair. Now the harder question is not whether you can find the traces of radioactivity. The hard one is how is it actually affecting people? What can they do to reduce their dose and reduce their risk? You know, What are you gonna do about all this data? Now it's suddenly less scientific, and now it's a decision about policy, and ethics, and desire, and the emotional feeling of safety. And then there's a bit of human rights sprinkled in in that, is it okay to expose someone to a dose that you think is acceptable, but you haven't really worked that out with them? There's an element of consent that's missing.
5: In 2019, two years after leaving the job, Tom McKnight was diagnosed with thymoma cancer. Although he received a successful operation to remove the tumor, doctors later discovered nodules on his lung and a growth on a bone in his hip. Survival rates Tom found on the American Cancer Society's website are scary. Odds are that by the time Americans vote again for president in 2024, Tom will be dead. Now, let's make it very clear. Tom does not believe his cancer is linked to his oil and gas work. But as he describes it, if you have no idea you are being exposed to radioactivity, you also have no idea how to avoid its harms.
4: I've seen people stick their finger in it and stick it in their mouth before, but... For the most part, we've all tasted brine because sometimes it splices up, you know. I was probably guilty of it more than others. But when I was working around in it, when it was time to eat, sometimes I would open my sandwich bag and I would try to roll the sandwich baggie down over my hand and never touch the sandwich. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I ate some dirt, though, too, you know. Every potato chip you ate, you touched. Course, if we knew that there was a radiation problem, we would have taken precautionary steps and you know, made sure we had respirators and made sure we had the right uniforms and gloves and effective PPG for that. You know, and it would have cost them more money. And I go back to what I said three or four times through our conversation that if we're forewarned with what's gonna happen, we can deal with it. But if we ignore it, it's just silently out there polluting our environment, getting our people sick, you know, and it's an unrecognized cost of the oil companies by not having to deal with it. In retrospect, I sure wish I had had some training and been prepared for it. At least at that point, I kind of could have went in with my eyes open, and then I wouldn't have had anybody to blame but myself, and we probably would have had established job practices that would have eliminated our exposure to things we didn't even know we were being exposed to. So do I feel bad? In retrospect, sure, I feel bad. I feel a little mad because I, I just can't believe that management and the oil companies did not know there was a good bit of radiation in there. I loved the, the economical impact. That was awesome. That was great. You know? My point in life was all my children were coming up of age, time to go into college. One was already in college. One was getting ready to go. And it just made life easy, you know? I mean, it was just so easy to peel them off a couple hundred bucks for groceries or fill a car with groceries and go visit them. I paid off my visa that I'd never had paid off since like 1982. It made it so that I could buy the house that I was living in versus just living in my mother-in-law's house, you know? The carrot was out there, it was really big. I sure appreciated it. But at what cost? I surely wouldn't knowingly want to put radioactive brine on the roads to keep dust down, or radioactive brine in the ice control trucks in the winter to keep the ice melted. That's insane.
5: This, by the way, is legal in at least 12 U.S. states, including Michigan, New York, Ohio, and until very recently, Pennsylvania.
4: And I would certainly do without any kind of economic better lifestyle to save our environment. I mean, that's a, that's nuts. It's just nuts. And then to have the uh, governmental agencies that could be responsible for this, shuffling off responsibility and saying, hey, that's the other guy, that's not me. And then the industry totally just, you know, Operating, it's like, well, let's just keep them fighting between ourselves and we can go do our job, is wrong. And I don't think there needs to be new laws. I think they need to just tie everything together and have some accountability. You know, if they know that that's there, if they know that those regulatory agencies are ignoring the problem or passing the buck, they're going to shrug and say, hey, we're just operating within the uh, boundaries that are set up for us, it's America. This capitalism, yo. Know? It's like I've always told my kids, there's difference between right and right to the letter of the law.
5: While Tom was working as a brine hauler, Brandon was experiencing something similar in another part of the massive Marcellus oil patch and coming to the petrifying realization. That even when he was being protected by his employers against radioactivity, he was not being fully protected. When a radioactive element decays, it blasts off a tiny explosive piece of matter or energy, what we know of as ionizing radiation. The three main types of concern are gamma rays, beta particles, and alpha particles. Alpha particles can be blocked by a piece of paper or your skin and gamma rays can go through feet of concrete and steel and may seem the scariest. But in an occupational setting like the oil and gas field, it is actually alpha particles that are typically the most concerning. This is because radioactive elements that emit alpha particles, such as radium, can become airborne as dust drift through the air, or be blown about by the wind, and easily be inhaled or ingested. Once inside the soft, organ-filled space of your fluid body, or lodged in your bones, an alpha particle's explosive charge can shred DNA to pieces, causing mutations in your genetic material that can potentially affect future generations, and obliterate cellular structures, Creating the possibility for the development of tumors that can lead to fatal cancers.
6: I guess to me, it's like this wouldn't even be a conversation if companies had been more upfront about what they've known for decades. Because we had respirators out there at all times, you know, because we were dealing with volatiles that you can filter out with these respirators. And if there were particles, that were like alpha and beta emitters, then it'd be nice to have the respirator on so we were not breathing those particles in. And we were not metering for alpha and beta emitting particles. So like, yeah, that sucks. <laughs> That's really frustrating. So if we had known at all that this was even like a remotely a possible issue, we would have had a policy in place to minimize our exposure so fast and we probably wouldn't have been back out there doing that until we did. As far as the disposal of this stuff, so that's the other part of this, Is like you said, is the leaching from the landfill to the streams. I mean, there's so many breakdowns on that side of it that it's hard to even know where to start. And, boy, we could really spread the blame out. But at some point, what it comes down to with things like this, is someone has to step up and just do the right thing and make themselves the accountable man or woman because otherwise it's just a circle of finger pointing and no change ever happens. Radiation is one of those things where it's kind of a good place to draw the line between like what should be like a moderate level of concern (laughs) and a severe level of concern. I feel the same way about asbestos, actually. Once you breathe asbestos in, it's going to keep doing damage for a long, long time. So these are sort of like gifts that keep on giving, you know, gifts that you don't want. As a worker, though, it's deeply disturbing that... I've seen since then studies that point to even without knowing whether or not it is going to cause harm, the fact remains that we knew about it and the potential was there. So just pretty cavalier to not at least, at the very least, advise the workers that are handling it. Now it's not just an environmental issue anymore. So now it's like... This is like an injury issue. This is people start to get sued, (laughs) you know, stuff like this. So yeah, no bueno.
5: What's odd when you start to dig into the topic of oil and gas waste and radioactivity is that at first it seems to be this giant black box, and it is hard to find any information. And then suddenly you cross a certain threshold. You read the right paper, or click in the right Google search word combination, or speak with the right expert. Then suddenly you're deluged with prominent reports. And then you meet someone like Dr. Julie Wetherington Rice, an earth scientist with the Ohio-based firm Bennett & Williams who has been studying oil and gas waste since she did her master's thesis on the topic back in the late 1970s. In the 1980s, she worked on a commission for Ohio's governor that assessed the health risks associated with spreading oilfield brine on roads. And she has been on brine ever since. Her notes of concern, outrage, and grief were like coming across an oracle in a clearing in the middle of a thorny forest of babble speaking regulators.
9: Well, the salt itself will kill you. I mean, <laughs> the salt levels are terrible. <laughs> Just being splashed by this stuff will cause all kinds of skin problems. Inhaling it in a vapor is very dangerous. You've got a number of volatile organic compounds and semi-volatile organic compounds in it. The standard ones that you're looking for are Btex, which is benzene, toluene, ethylbenzene, and xylene. But there are a whole slew of other ones as well that are included. They all have health regulations and exposures to the levels in the brine are significant enough to be a demonstrated hazard and then the heavy metals all the concerns of the health damage from the heavy metals you've got barium and you've got leads and you've got cadmium and you've got strontium and you've got you know name every awful heavy metal that's on the list and i will tell you it's there in some levels So the things that you're concerned about are the volatiles, the semi-volatiles, the heavy metals, the chlorides and sulfides are huge. And then, as we've learned later, the radioactivity part. The hazards are known. It's just that nobody's been in a place to do anything about it because the industry is sacred. They're getting Hail Mary passes, they're sacred. And as long as they're making the contributions they're making at the federal and the state level, and as long as we've got the government that we've got, they're going to continue to be successful. And the only way to really turn this around is to vote everybody out of office that takes contributions from the oil and gas industry.
5: And what about the workers like Tom and Brandon, the pinball stuck in the middle of the toxic machine? Dr. Wetherington-Rice does not mince words.
9: Yeah, they're going to die, they're going to die, okay? I mean, my father died of chemical exposures. My husband's father died of chemical exposures. We've had generations after generations of workers who have died from chemical exposures of all different kinds. And sometimes it's gotten the attention of, you know, the CDC and NIOSH and folks like that, and OSHA, and sometimes it has not. We have much better rules and regulations for a lot of industries than we used to have, but oil and gas and coal are the outlaws. So in a general sense, we are much, much, much smarter about chemical exposure than we were when my dad was the health and safety officer, all the places he ever worked. But, you know, what was safe one year, the next year, the safety level was a thousand times lower. So, all of the guys that he was with were all the canaries in the cages, and they all had the exposures. So, they all died. And there was enough death that people woke up and decided they needed to do something about it. And that's why we've got the rules that we've got.
3: There are workers like Tom and Brandon, and the people on the ground taking samples like Andrew and Marco. And then there are the health physicists. Technically, they are a profession devoted to protecting people in the environment from potential radiation hazards. Or as the banner on the website of the Health Physics Society notes, specialists in radiation protection. The Health Physics Society is a professional organization composed largely of state and federal radiation regulators and various independent academic scientists. The scientists we spoke to, Dr. Emily Caffrey and Dr. Jan Johnson, repeatedly conveyed to us that they were speaking for themselves and that their words did not represent the views of the Health Physics Society. Both health physicists say that it is important for workers to be protected and be informed about the materials they are handling, yet continue to stress that radioactivity levels in the oil and gas industry are not enough to endanger workers. Justin Noble, one of the authors of this article, put out an article earlier this year in Rolling Stone magazine, the result of a 20-month reporting and research effort that laid out the incredibly sloppy way the Marcellus oil and gas industry is handling radioactive materials in multiple different pathways of concern for workers. Dr. Johnson and Dr. Caffrey helped pun a rebuttal promoted on the Health Physics Society website that stated the article had some egregious errors and boldly stated radiological exposures at the levels experienced in the oil and gas industry are orders of magnitude below where any observable effects will occur. Soon after our talk with Dr. Johnson and Dr. Caffrey, this rebuttal was retracted. In our conversation, when asked if they thought oil and gas workers should be treated as radiation workers as workers in the nuclear industry or medical radiation scientists are. Dr. Johnson said,
0: No, I do not. They do not receive doses that would qualify them to be radiation workers. My concerns are primarily that oil and gas, t be managed appropriately and in accordance with the science as we know it, and that the regulations uh, reflect the science accurately. You know, you have to understand that radiation is all around us. It's in the air we breathe. It's in the soil we walk on. We're all exposed to radiation every day. We know what the effects are at higher levels, but we don't see any biological effects at levels in the range of background. So those are the things we know.
10: Part of our purview as a health physics society, and specifically to ask the experts, is to look for news articles, TV shows, Chernobyl, Bosch season six, things like that that come out and respond to them because When we read that article, a number of us noted the some of the errors in that article, and we feel that it's our job and our within our purview to respond to inaccurate information and to put out correct information.
3: And yet here's the problem. Caffrey and Johnson were unaware of some pretty important research. In nineteen eighty-two, scientists with the oil and gas industry's massively powerful lobby, the American Petroleum Institute put out a report entitled, An Analysis of the Impact of the Regulation of Radionuclides as a Hazardous Air Pollutant on the Petroleum Industry. The report assessed the radiation risks to workers and the general public from oil and gas development, determined that brine contained, quote, biologically significant quantities of radium-226 and radon-222 and concluded that the totality of radionuclides brought to the surface in oil and gas production represents significant sources of internal exposure, primarily in the occupational environment. The report continued, Radium-226 is a potent source of radiation exposure, both internal and external. Radon-222 and its short-lived progeny deliver significant population and occupational exposures to the upper tracheobronchial tree, while lead-210 and its decay product contaminate much process equipment and can represent significant exposure to the bone in some occupational subgroups. Radon-222 and its daughters cause the most severe impact to public health. And then there was the 1990 report in the Oil and Gas Journal one of the industry's most prominent and well-respected publications, which stated that norm contamination was, quote, a potential health hazard to personnel and a possible public relations problem for the industry. The report suggested that, quote, norm-contaminated sludges and other waste materials included contaminated vessels and equipment may have to be handled as low-level radioactive wastes and disposed of accordingly. Another article on oil and gas radioactivity published in the Society of Petroleum Engineers well-respected Journal of Petroleum Technology in 1993 reiterated those concerns. In fact, the article begins with the following, quote, contamination of oil and gas facilities with naturally occurring radioactive materials is widespread. Some contamination may be sufficiently severe that maintenance and other personnel may be exposed to hazardous concentrations. Then, just a few years ago, the prominent International Association of Oil and Gas Producers lobby put out a 67-page document on Managing Naturally Occurring Radioactive Material in the Oil and Gas Industry, which acknowledges that radioactivity risks to oil and gas industry workers are quite real. Quote, There are two ways in which personnel can be exposed to radiation. Irradiation from external sources and contamination from inhaled and ingested sources. An accompanying diagram features an illustrated oil and gas worker standing above an open pipe spewing radioactivity and another worker standing alongside, breathing it all in. Tiny alpha and beta particles are shown accumulating in their lungs and guts. It's a scenario not so different than our brine hauler Tom described, eating his lunch while connecting his truck to a brine tank and waiting for it to load, or Brandon who had to peek his head into a frack tank with accumulated sludges at the bottom to check levels. The International Association of Oil and Gas Producers report has even more worrisome news for oil and gas workers like Tom and Brandon. Quote, "...exposure to ionizing radiation, even at low doses, can cause damage to the genetic material in cells that can result in the development of radiation-induced cancer many years later, heritable diseases in future generations, and some developmental effects under certain conditions." The report states, in fact, the report repeatedly alerts that, quote, a reading greater than twice background levels is a positive indication of contamination and should be handled as such. End quote. Recall now what Brandon had told us.
6: Double background is almost nothing still in my mind, at least.
3: This examination of workers' exposure on the job is not to call fire in a crowded theater. It's an expedition through a theater crowded with sheaves of documents and heaps of experts saying that the whole city block has been slowly smoldering for a 100 years. Plenty of information exists saying that these oil and gas jobs have legitimate radioactivity exposure risks. The American Petroleum Institute knows it. The Oil and Gas Journal knows it. The Society of Petroleum Engineers knows it. The International Association of Oil and Gas Producers knows it. Somehow, the tens of thousands of workers on the ground in booming oil and gas fields like the Marcellus, workers like Tom and Brandon, somehow they don't know it. And somehow our health physicists don't know it either. And it should be noted that their words matter much more than perhaps they even know. After the America's radioactive secret story broke, concerned residents in states like Michigan and Pennsylvania took the article to their state regulators, worried about radioactivity risks from oil and gas development to workers and the public. And they received the Health Physics Society rebuttal in response. When Public Herald cornered Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection Chief Media Spokesperson, Neil Shader at the Rachel Carson State Office Building in downtown Harrisburg, and asked him about the article, he had this to say.
1: I know that there are a number of inaccuracies, and the, I'm probably going to butcher their name, but it's like the Society of Health Physicists, who are, yes, uh, recently published a multi-page letter detailing those inaccuracies. Mm -hmm. So I know that's a story out there. I know that a lot of people have found inaccuracies with it.
3: Why are influential health physicists so confident there are no harms? Where are they getting their data from? From the agency Neil Shader represents, the police force charged with overseeing the oil and gas industry in the most radioactive shale basin in the United States, Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection, or PADEP, If radioactivity got away from the handlers of public perception in the Marcellus, fracking might lose its social license the world over. The health physicists we spoke with knew PADEP's report on radioactivity from 2016 quite well, and it appears they relied on it heavily. It was a report put out in 2016 by the PADEP called the TNORM Study Report. This was intended to be an authoritative examination of Marcellus oil and gas radioactivity risks. PADEP looked at the wellhead, they looked at the brine, they looked at the landfills, they considered workers and the public. And the report's conclusion has been repeated time and time again by the DEP, regulators in other states such as North Dakota, by the EPA in a 2018 report that examined Marcellus oil and gas waste streams, and even by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission in making crucial calculations enabling the approval of fracked gas pipeline projects. The parroted conclusion is, quote, there is little or limited potential for radiation exposure to workers in the public from development, completion, production, transmission, processing, storage, and end use of natural gas.
5: So you regard the Pennsylvania t report as a good standard and as something with appropriate and accurate information?
10: Yes,
0: absolutely.
3: But if you take the time to read the full TNORM report, you will see on the very first page that it was prepared not by the PADEP, but by Permafix Environmental Services, which is a radioactive waste management and cleanup company profiting from the industry's waste. Furthermore, The report states that some members of the public and workers are indeed at risk. Quote, there is potential for internal radiation exposure to workers and members of the public from alpha and beta surface radioactivity at centralized wastewater facilities that treat oil and gas wastewater. There is potential for internal alpha and beta surface radioactivity exposure to workers and members of the public at zero liquid discharge facilities that treat oil and gas wastewater. And there is potential for exceeding public dose limits from external gamma radiation for workers at the natural gas processing plant. After speaking with Marcellus oil and gas workers, it is abundantly clear that the DEPT-Norm report does an incredibly superficial job of calculating radioactivity exposures calculations to which these workers have attached their lives. When it came to calculating doses, the DEP Teen report makes no mention of measuring the dose received when workers had to stick hands or whole heads into tanks of sludge, or when workers climb inside the tank with shovels and squeegees to scoop sludge out for up to an hour. Tom described one worker whose only job was tank cleaning, partly because he was a gung-ho young guy at the low end of the stick and partly because he was so good at it. When it came to calculating doses, the DEPT norm report also made no mention of workers eating their lunch in a dusty, sludgy workplace environment with unwashed hands, as Tom described to us. There's no mention of having to clean up brine skills with inappropriate gear, as Brandon described to us. And no mention of brine splashing on their faces and into their mouths during flowback operations, as Tom described. And yet, workers and the public hear the rhetoric about this report on repeat all is fine no risks here from self-proclaimed experts and state officials when faced with concerns here is neil shader again the spokesman for the padep
1: we take environmental health and public safety very seriously
3: and here is scott perry the deputy secretary of the oil and gas division of padep
5: I think Pennsylvania is very, very progressive when it comes
7: to managing naturally occurring or technologically enhanced uh, radioactive materials.
3: This is what Marcellus oil and gas workers hear when they express concerns and what journalists have regularly been told about the topic. Perhaps most significantly, this is what state representatives who draft the laws that claim to protect its workers and the public have regurgitated ad nauseum when we asked pennsylvania state senator camera Bardelada, who represents a district in the booming heart of the marcellus in washington county pennsylvania about oil and gas radiation her office replied quote senator bardellata took the initiative of reaching out directly to industry to understand better how they are managing risks from t-norm dep comprehensively studied this issue in cooperation with other public and private organizations and determined that norm and materials associated with the oil and gas industry were well-managed and did not present a risk to the public. It found that while the majority of waste streams generated by the oil and gas industry did not pose a risk to workers or the general public, industry professionals were able to make proper adjustments to handling, processing, and disposal protocols based on screening, monitoring, and analytical data. Everywhere we turned, PADEP's report was referenced to dispel concern, a report produced by a company connected to the industry, branded as official by the state's Department of Environmental Protection, and treated as the gold standard. And yet, all the while, the workers whose well-being everyone claims to be so concerned about are left out in the cold, willfully misinformed, tragically and unnecessarily exposed.
5: Like Dr. Emily Caffrey and Dr. Jan Johnson, many health physicists in America have not dug into the data and added up the doses to show that this industry is endangering thousands of oil and gas workers and may ready have endangered thousands more. Countless numbers and nameless names because health physicists have failed to appropriately examine the issue. They have not raised the alarm bell, instead, It is left to the independent journalists and quirky scientists and industry workers with enough courage to go against a mountain of momentum of the most powerful industry on earth and blow the whistle and it is left to the trial lawyers the most hated scum of the earth at least according to the world's richest industries that is as like with dark waters or aaron brockovich It is often their work that serves as the only way into justice. For in America, for better or worse, it all ends up in a court. And when it comes to oil and gas radioactivity, an Aaron Brockovich or Robert Bilott has not yet been nationally anointed. But when one finally is, it will probably be the relentless, occasionally crass, often charming, New Orleans-born attorney Stuart Smith. He tried his first oil and gas radioactivity case against Shell and Chevron in the Mississippi oil fields in the late 1980s and early 1990s and has become one of the go-to lawyers nationwide on complicated radioactivity cases and the most prominent lawyer in the field of oil and gas radioactivity. He wrote a book about it all that was published in 2015, called crude justice, and he knows the oil fields of Louisiana and Mississippi like the back of his hand. But the Marcellus is new to Stewart. While Stewart was not prepared to go on the record, setting that he was still involved in sensitive cases in this field, he previously told me for a story published in April for the environmental investigative site DeSmogBlog, I have litigated several cases that showed that oil field waste caused cancer, All the big majors have known about this for many decades. The regulators are obviously aware of it too. It's just that they don't have the political cojones to do anything about it. And when it comes to the workers being unknowingly exposed to radioactivity contamination by multinational corporations that know full well, Smith explained, quote, These men are guinea pigs. And yet in our conversation with Dr. Emily Caffrey and Dr. Jan Johnson of the Health Physics Society, they repeatedly said the amount of radioactivity involved in oil and gas production was not enough to affect the health of the workers. When it came to dosage, which is a way to measure how much radioactivity the human body has taken in, they kept bringing up the number 10.
10: You can't tease out an association between radiation and cancer at doses below about 10 REM.
5: REM stands for Roentgen equivalent man, and is one of the main ways of measuring the amount of ionizing radiation deposited in human tissue, or put more simply, a measure of how much radiation your body absorbed. So Dr. Caffrey gives us this magic number of 10. And yet from reading through the dose reconstructions in Stewart's cases, one sees that some workers measured cumulative doses estimated to be as high as 33,000 rem and regularly in the range of 100 to 1,000 rem. But the tragedy is a thorough dose reconstruction as laid out in Stewart's cases has never been done for Marcellus oil and gas workers. As Smith had told me earlier, from my Rolling Stones story published in January, they know, quote, All of the big majors have done tests to determine exactly what risks workers are exposed to. One question I ask these companies, what have you done to go out and find all the radioactive waste you have dumped all over the United States for the past 120 years? And the answer is nothing.
3: With Brandon at the foot of Arden Landfill in Washington County, Pennsylvania, otherwise known as Mount Trashmore. From 2011 to 2018, 1,297,000 tons of solid waste generated from Pennsylvania oil and gas wells were disposed of at Arden Landfill, and 99% of that came from fracked wells in the Marcellus Shale, which According to the best U.S. Geological Survey reports and data appear to have a radioactive signature higher than any other oil and gas play in the country. The agency, by the way, has known the Marcellus was highly radioactive for at least 60 years. Pennsylvania has nearly three dozen other landfills accepting oil and gas waste. And millions of people who live downstream as radionuclides are being discharged into Pennsylvania waterways. So you see, this is affecting a lot more than just the workers. The public is at risk too. Landfills and the sewage treatment plants that are supposed to treat their leachate are, as Guy Krupa, a sewage treatment plant operator in Belle Vernon, PA, and one of our first whistleblowers on this topic revealed to us, like the assholes of the fracking industry. Because after being upchucked to the surface during the production process and shuffled around the various intestinal tubes and organs of the industry's storage and hauling and treatment processes, this is where so much of the solid waste ends up. Our experts did not take lightly to this unfolding disaster.
7: Putting this radioactive material into municipal waste sites is a giant concern. That could be life-altering for a lot of people. You know, people in the vicinity, people downwater the streams, all those things.
9: This is a permanent reactor near your house. And it will always be a reactor because the waste got pooled together. And it will make as much radon and radium today as it will tomorrow and the next day, and the next day, and 30 years from now, and 100 years from now, and 500 years from now. Because the half-life of this stuff is like forever. The half-life of uranium-238, which is in the cuttings, is 4.47 billion with a B years old. And the thorium is 14 billion. That's like back to the Big Bang. So, while it's a naturally occurring material, when you concentrate it, you create
4: a reactor.
8: We're going to go to that dark place again. And if you think about what a landfill is, think of it as the world's worst tea bag. You have waste sitting in the landfill, and the rainwater percolates through, and the leachate is that rainwater coming out after it's been through the tea bag, after it's been through the landfill. And it has all this yucky stuff in it. And you try and get rid of it by sending it to the local sewage treatment plant, which treats waste in a really old-fashioned, simple, very effective way. They throw all the stuff in a great big vat, like acres and acres of vat, and they just let the bacteria eat it. And the bacteria get really fat and sink to the bottom. And that's our sewage sludge, all that dead bacteria. Hey, our bodies do that too. 25% of our solid waste is bacteria. So the sewage plant is basically us on a giant scale. And then you cart that sludge back to the, where else? The landfill, where the rainwater percolates through and the cycle continues. But if you do it enough times, you know, that tea bag gets really gross. The leachate gets worse and the treatment plant can't take it anymore because the stuff would actually kill the bacteria that do all the work. And so not only is your waste from the landfill not treated, but none of the waste from the entire community is treated. It's like an amplifier. You've shut off treatment for everybody. So you can't take the leachate anymore. So what happens to the leachate? Ah, there's a trick. You take the leachate and you throw it back on top of the landfill and let it percolate through again. And it's like the Sorcerer's Apprentice, if you ever saw the Mickey Mouse cartoon, where you're collecting more leachate. So you throw it on top of the landfill, so more leachate comes out the bottom. And this goes faster and faster and faster. And you think it's entirely stupid, but what you're forgetting is while that's happening, everybody's getting paid. So the system continues. Really, we're not making treatment systems for radioactive waste, we're making transit systems. You know, we're moving them from one place or one medium to another without actually dealing with the problem at hand.
3: And yet the DEP continues to tell us there is no problem. Back to when Public Herald tried to speak to DEP spokesman Neil Shader in Harrisburg about this radioactivity issue.
1: We don't know what we don't know. And if we're not getting informed, then we don't know. All right, why don't, you know, I'd hate to,
3: Speaking is Joshua uh, Perbanek, the co-founder of Public Herald.
2: We're telling you you're informed about the radioactive leachate story. We're telling you you're informed about those other places. Get out there. Get somebody out there and test them. And and start issuing the enforcement, start issuing the violations. You know, it's it's not a difficult thing to do. We did it in less than a month's time.
1: With very little money. Our staff are out there. We take compliance very seriously again that's our overarching. What do
2: you think I want to do, write about radioactive leachate for two years? You know, I mean, that's the situation you guys are putting us in, because you're not going out there and handling these stories. I should have ended that story after we published it, but now I have to continue it for another year because there's no enforcement, no action. I got to go out and do the testing for you. I mean, that's, that's, that's what we're dealing with as a news organization. So it, it's frustrating for us, you know, to be in this position where we're learning all this information—the same information you have. In most cases, we're just publishing your documents, and we're publishing your T-norm study that says the POTWs are hot. You know, there's a T-norm study you have from Permafix, and it says right in there you have a, a long-term problem, a chronic problem of radioactivity building up in picocuries per gram in the soil and the stream beds outside of the sewage plants. And here we are, you know, three years later after that study. Nothing done about it.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, good talking with you guys. All right.
0: Thanks,
8: Neil. Thank you.
5: We found one politician that gave us hope for the path forward. Danielle Fierlatin is not your typical career politician. She was originally in hospitality, and when the Mariner East pipeline was being built near her quiet home in suburban Philadelphia, she quickly realized that if anyone was going to be looking out for the health and well being of her children and neighbors, it should be her. She is not afraid to fearlessly confront the many Pennsylvania legislators deeply tied to the oil and gas industry. She serves Chester County, which is on the outskirts of Philadelphia.
10: Before I ran for office, before I was involved in electoral politics, I always just said, oh, well, there's somebody who takes care of that. Like, that would never get approved. This is the United States of America. We have people who make sure that those things don't happen, except we don't. You know, we keep talking about jobs and going back to work and people having a way to put food on their table. But for so many of these people, going back to work means putting themselves and their family at risk. Has this always just been the culture of Pennsylvania that you sacrifice your life for your livelihood? And is that where we are in the United States of America, the country that, you know, took someone to the moon and has done so many wonderful, great things in this world. Is that the country we really are when you pull back the layers? We're the country that encourages people or teaches people that you have to be willing to give up your life for your livelihood. You can listen to many committee meetings and many floor speeches where I've asked the question, what is the statistical value of life? I'm always asking them to reveal that number because every industry has it. Every industry knows it and we know that they know it. We should always know, we know that the airline industry, the automobile industry knows and understands what the value of taking steps to improve the prevention of a fatality. And to me, it's like, what are they hiding? Why don't they want that information out there? Obviously it's gotta be something that would disturb people if they knew. And so I ask it over and over and over again, and it makes people upset and it makes them mad. But I keep asking it because the reaction to the question reveals a lot about the motives of the people who know that information and don't want to share it.
5: Another state legislator, which Public Herald previously reported on in our story, Government Failed You, is Representative Sarah Inamorato, who represents part of Allegheny County in the Pittsburgh area. She is currently drafting a bill to increase regulation on T-norm waste from the oil and gas industry and will keep tirelessly defending the health and safety of Pennsylvania residents. And while it will take an army of legislators like Danielle Frilatin and Sarah Inamorato to start to turn the tide in Pennsylvania and beyond, an army is building. Which side are you on?
3: This is not just a story about two workers in the oil and gas industry in the early 2010s. This is a story that crosses borders in over 100 years of history. Just as Ida Tarbell tirelessly uncovered the corruption of the Standard Oil Company in 1904. Just as coal workers in Harlan County, Kentucky, bravely stood against the corporate interests that were endangering their health and well-being in 1973 Justice Stuart Smith took on BP after they were trying to cover up their egregious harms caused to the Gulf and local workers in 2010. We will keep working tirelessly to bring you the facts and uncover the truth. Bringing justice to this issue will take all of these characters we introduced in this story and more. The badass scientists wading through the creeks, testing the radioactive muck, the ballsy trial lawyers taking on some of the biggest corporations in the world, the scrappy journalists, the honorable legislators, the few federal and state regulators standing up for what is right, the tireless local activists, and the people like you, listening to this piece right now. How the
0: good old union has come in here to dwell, which side are you on, which side are you on?
3: From Florence start Reese, battle, who lived through the Harlan County coal sure miner strikes of the 1930s and 1970s. She is singing the song she wrote in 1931 Which Side Are You On?
0: Which side are you on? Are you on?
3: If you go to Harlan County,
0: there is no neutral there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on
3: Which side? Are- Much of the solid oil and gas waste is out of Tom and Brandon's hands and is now sitting in municipal landfills and being sent to sewage treatment plants who are then discharging radionuclides into our public waterways. The question remains, what are the harms for people who live, play, and drink from these waterways? And why is nothing being done about it? Stay tuned.
2: thanks for listening to this week's story on news Q. for more about t norm and the trafficking of this waste and the dangers that are involved you can check us out at publicherald.org and read through our most recent stories where we published a t norm leachate map which shows you the places that these trucks would be going to with this waste be sure to get the latest in our upcoming reports by subscribing to this podcast and your favorite podcast channels And thank you to everyone who's supported Public Herald's work thus far and signed up on our Patreon. This kind of production is made possible by your generous donations, so thank you. This story was produced in part by Sam Sanson, who's gonna sign off the show for us here. And I'm your host, Joshua Perbanek. This has been News Coup, where we overthrow the status quo.
10: Hi, this is Sam Sanson, a producer for News Coup from Public Herald coming to you from Breckenridge, Colorado. Today's story was reported on and narrated by Justin Noble and Kristen Losey. It was edited by Public Herald co-founders Melissa Troutman and Joshua Hibbanek with contributions from the T-Norm team. Writer Emma Lichtwerk, investigative journalist Talia Wiener, multimedia wizard Andrew Geller, communication coordinator Olivia Rasmussen, photojournalist Nina Berman, makers of Nover Collective and I helped produce it, and Ben Cohen and Sam Waldenberg of Dream Louder and Heavy Color Music did sound mixing and made the music. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in next time.